0: Well, good morning, family. Man, it's it's such a privilege to be able to gather together like this. Uh, just as we talked about Sally, isn't that amazing? Yeah, Lisa said that's a standing ovation. When I got that, I was like, wow, God, you are so good. Thank you for being so kind to her in that. Um, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the leaders here at Kettlebrook. And again, it's great to gather together and worship together as family um how many of you i'm gonna put up a picture and you guys tell me what this is this is not a trick question someone tell me what this is trick-or-treaters yeah raise your hand if you either participated like you brought your kids around the neighborhood or something like that or you sat out in your driveway and and handed out candy this year a lot of you yeah any favorite costumes stay puff man that would be pretty good any others R2-D2, that's good, too. Yeah, my, my wife's favorite was um, Maui from Moana. I kind of remember that movie. It's a kid's movie. Uh, it, it was just great. The guy was perfect for it. And my favorite was there was this guy who was a person, but then he looked like he had a person coming out the front that he was carrying and a person on his back that he was carrying. I thought it was hilarious. But um, trick-or-treating, it's great because of the costumes. What, what's even more fun is the kids, right? Because you get all sorts of different kids who come out, and they trick-or-treat, and they react differently. You know, you have those kids who kind of do this, and they kind of walk up, like we were at, kind of by our garage. And then they get up to you, and what do they do? Suddenly they become mute, like their their voice goes away, right? And it doesn't matter how many times mom says, what do you say? And she says it just like like that, right? What do you say? It doesn't matter how many times the mom says that. They're like, I don't care what kind of candy you give me. I don't care if you give me a whole candy bar. You will not break me. I will not speak to you, right? They're just totally afraid, and they totally pause when the lights come on, and they're passive. They're passive trick-or-treaters. But that's not all kids. See, there's a certain number of kids who are aggressive trick-or-treaters. We had, in our neighborhood, we had like 200, 250 pieces of candy. And so I was a little, I I got uptight about, we're not going to have enough candy. Our kids are dumping in candy from stashes they have hidden all over in the house, right? And so we get more candy, but Libby's like, I got this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preempt the kids. What I do, typically for trick-or-treating, I'll have the bowl, and then I'll say, kids, hey, why don't you pick out a piece of candy? terrible idea never do that right because what does that invite 20 seconds of maybe this one maybe this one maybe this one it's madness don't do that do what my wife did and so she preempted she said i'm gonna give them one big one small i'm gonna put it in their bag for them when they come up and say trick-or-treat well that works for most kids It doesn't work for the aggressive trick-or-treater right the aggressive trick or is like they kind of are thinking they don't say this but they're like oh isn't that sweet how about i grab what i want we had a couple of people who Libby reached her hand out. She's going to put the candy in, and they're like, nope, I'm going to go over you, like over her hand. I didn't see it, but it makes me laugh. I'm going to go over your hand. I'm going to get what I want, and I'm going to put it in my bag. These are the people who, like, they think you've got to take what you want in life, right? They're the aggressive trick-or-treaters. You have a portion of those. But there was this one lone wolf, might have been two, but one lone wolf who, he wasn't a passive trick-or-treater. He wasn't an aggressive trick-or-treater, but he did something else. He walked up, and I don't remember his costume. He walked up. He did what you do. He says, trick or treat. Okay, we put the candy in. And then he said one more word after that, maybe a couple seconds after that, made me laugh out loud. I thought it was priceless. You know the word he said? More. More. Right, that's right, Matthew. He he wasn't passive. He didn't just stand there mute. He wasn't aggressive, reaching over and grabbing more. But he walked up. We gave him candy, and he said, more. And I seriously started laughing out loud. I was like, this is awesome. He's being assert- His parents are kind of watching this scene play out. The young parents, they're there by grandma and grandpa on the sidewalk. And they're like, what is going on there? So I said, oh, this is great. He's just having assertive communication. He asked for more. You know you're a geek who's going to give a message on conflict when you tell parents of a kid who asks for more that he's just being an assertive trick-or-treater, right? That's what I did, though. I was like, this is awesome. So he asked for more. He went on her way. There's this one other little guy who he was really little, he came up, he, he said trick-or-treat, Libby put candy in his basket, and then he come up came up to me, because I'm seated right next to her, and he said, I have candy, and I was like, awesome, awesome, yeah, that's great, you got a lot of good candy. He said it again, I have candy, and I'm like, you have candy, that's great. So later on after he left, Libby was like, no, he was asking you for more candy, and I was like, oh, sorry, epic fail. So that was the second assertive trick-or-treater. But it's interesting, trick-or-treating, it's like this, Awkward social experiment where kids have to wrestle with anxiety and public speaking and assertiveness, but with random strangers and sometimes where they're wearing this mask to hide who they really are. Now, the way kids interact with a stranger when they trick-or-treat, it's not really that different, though, from the way we interact with strangers or non-strangers in conflict. See, sometimes we're passive. Sometimes we're aggressive. And sometimes we're assertive, but we can learn from trick or treating. Think about how you communicate, and think about how you communicate, especially when there's a conflict involved. Would you tend to be on more passive side? Conflict, in any way, shape, or form, is bad. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pretend it's not there. I'm gonna sweep it under the rug. W- would you tend to be? Aggressive and kind of like, I need to take what I want in life, and I'm going to tell you what's going on in this conflict, and you're going to be aggressive. Or would you tend to be assertive? State how you feel and what you want. See, when I'm doing premarital counseling with a couple, we spend the most time on communication and conflict resolution. You want to know why? Those are the two kind of categories that will indicate the most relational success if you can communicate well, and if you can resolve conflict well. And that's not true just in a marriage. That's true in any relationship, in the marketplace, in our homes, in our friendships. And for us as followers of Jesus, though, the reason that the way we resolve conflict and how we do it and that we do it well, the reason that's so important is because it models the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The way we resolve conflict with one another and with others is an opportunity for us to model and tell the story of our God, the good news of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next two weeks in a little book that some of you might have never heard of called Philemon. And we're going to see how Paul models resolving conflict between a man named Philemon and his bond servant. We'll explain that later on SMS. So go ahead and turn to Philemon with me. We should have a page number in the PowerPoint, I believe. As you're going there, I'm going to give you a little bit of context on this book. If you have your own Bible, I believe it's after 1st, 2nd, Timothy, Titus, and then Philemon. But here's a little context on the book of Philemon. If you have one of the Story of God Bibles, it's 828. Philemon was a wealthy Christian who lived in the city of Colossus, about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. So if you put up that map, that next one, Roger, please. This shows Ephesus is up on the left, Colossus or Colossae. Is on the right. This is where Philemon is. Classic. Apparently, during Paul's three year ministry in Ephesus, Philemon heard the gospel and was saved. He began serving the cause of Christ in the Colossian community, opening his home for a group of Christians to meet there regularly. Next, please. At some point, Onesimus, one of Philemon's bondservants, fled to Rome. Possibly having stolen money or property from Philemon and now a fugitive, Onesimus was living in the most populated city of the Roman Empire. Hoping to escape deten- detection, in a rather remarkable set of circumstances not recounted in the letter, but certainly reflective of God's sovereignty, Onesimus somehow came into contact with the Apostle Paul and became a Christian. As he grew in Christ, he spent much time and effort helping Paul, who was severely constrained by his imprisonment. So that's the context of the the book of Philemon. But what I want to point out too, and, and this is more for us than those, you know, not here. But this is an actual man, Paul, writing to actual people, Philemon and those in his house, about actual issues and how to live their lives differently now that they began following Christ. So I know sometimes people will wonder, is this real? This is real. It's to actual people about actual issues, about how to actually live in light of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and read Philemon 1 to 16. Only one chapter in this book starts out verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Ophia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold in order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who's my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So this is Philemon, and Paul addresses himself as a prisoner in verse 1 of Christ because it's thought that he wrote this letter, which would be hand-delivered to Philemon during his three-year imprisonment, which they thought to be in Rome or in Ephesus. And he's writing to Philemon, who we talked about earlier in the context, and the the others in this, um, Aphia and Archippus, are thought to maybe be his wife and his son or other followers of Jesus who meet in the church that's in his home. This has nothing to do with conflict resolution again, but isn't it interesting that it says the church that meets in their home. See, the church isn't any one place. It's the people of God as they gather. No wonder why we put such an emphasis on groups that gather outside of this building, right? The church that meets in their home. But Paul calls Philemon his dear friend. He says when he remembers him in prayer, he prays for him, that he's thankful for him because he's heard about Philemon's one faith in God, in the Lord Jesus, it says, and then how he loves his brothers and sisters in Christ, how he loves the others who are part of God's family. And so he's thankful for him, and he continues to bless him in words. And this is going to be a hand-delivered letter right to him. But then he gets to the issue at hand. Verse 8. Go there with me, please. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. Yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. Here's what's going on in that. If you put up that next slide for me, Roger. So he says, I could order you, right? But instead of ordering Philemon, he says, I'm going to appeal to you. And when you look at that, the next slide, please. What he's really doing is he's saying, I could use my power and make you do something. But instead of doing that, instead, I'm going to plead with you. Okay, I'm going to come to you in humility and love. See, Paul had spiritual authority in the life of Philemon. He had spiritual authority because Philemon, somehow, while Paul was in Ephesus during the three years, he became a follower of Jesus. And because of that, Philemon had inherent trust in Paul. He kind of submitted to Paul. If Paul told him to do something, he probably would do it because Paul had spiritual authority in his life. So he could have told them exactly what to do with Onesimus. He could have told them exactly how to do it. And what would have Philemon done in that circumstance? He probably would have done it, right? But notice how Paul says he goes to him. He doesn't go to him ordering him. He doesn't go to him using that spiritual authority or power, which he could. But he goes pleading. He goes in love. And I think the reason that he does that is he knows that if he would have just ordered him what to do, even if he had done it, there would have been a relational cost to doing that. I know it's hard to focus with the bubbling. That's okay. We'll, we'll, we we could do it. When you're engaged in conflict, or when you're seeking to resolve conflict, is your goal to love the other person well? As I ask that question, that's a convicting question. I'm thinking about when I'm engaged in conflict with someone. Is our goal to love them well? I think if we're honest, a lot of times it's not. right? Our goal is to be right. Our goal is to win. Our goal is to whatever. But I don't know if top of the priority list for us in the heat of the moment when we think about conflict is to love well. See, when we're silent, like the trick-or-treater, And or give the silent treatment. Our goal isn't to love. When we're aggressive, our goal is not to love. But Paul knows that the goal of resolving this conflict between Philemon and Onesimus and himself, the goal is to love, so that the relationship could be restored. It's not to win. It's not to get even. It's not to get back. It's to restore the relationship. He also knows we can't say, hey, I love God, and yet I don't love my brother or sister. That's incongruent. It doesn't make sense. But put yourself in Philemon's situation. Your, your bond servant, Onesimus, right? He, he has run away. Maybe he's taken things from you. He crosses paths with Paul, somehow becomes a follower of Jesus. Um, and now Paul is saying, I want you, Philemon, to take Onesimus back, but not simply as a bond servant. And again, I'll explain what that is later. But I want you to take him back as a brother. If you're Philemon and Paul orders you, remember, Paul did not order you. He appeals to you. But if he orders you to do this, what are you feeling? You can answer this. If Paul orders you to do that, what are you going to be feeling? Obligated? Pressure? What was that, Jessica? Defiance? Yeah. Right? Orders you to do something. There's not much freedom in that, right? There's not much choice because this is what you need to do and here's why you need to do it. Here's how you do it. But he pleads with him. Instead of ordering him, he pleads with him in resolving this conflict on the basis of love as a peer, as a brother in Christ, leader to leader. He assertively communicates. He doesn't say more, (laughs) but he says, here's what I'd like. Here's how I feel about it. You see, when we deal with conflict in our relationships, there's different ways we can seek to do it. We can be passive, right? We can, uh, we can pretend that a situation or an issue doesn't exist. We can, what's this, sweep it under the rug, right? We can run away from it. We, we can hide See, the other end of the spectrum would be like we can be super aggressive in conflict resolution. We can take what I want. We can be like the air horn, which, wow, I shouldn't do that again. (laughs) Is my head supposed to be spin? No, it's not. But we can be super aggressive, and that's what we can sound like or come across to the person we're trying to resolve the conflict with, right? We could also be passive aggressive. We know what this is. We kind of mutter something under our breath or... Say it after the fact. Or, Ryan, it's been about a year since you visited. You might want to pack your bags and go on a guilt trip. Social media. We can post something never having to say something face to face. See, a few minutes I started this tea kettle. Did anyone notice that? Yeah, you all did, right? You're like, I can't listen to you because you have that tea kettle going. My ear is still ringing, by the way. So I started this tea kettle. And what is the goal of this tea kettle? The goal of this tea kettle is to bring water from room temperature to a boil in a matter of minutes, and a couple features that I like about this kettle. Did anyone see it steam? Yeah. Okay, it's releasing pressure because it's brought the water to the boil. But something else happened. Anyone else? Did anyone hear a kind of a click? What does that signify? It shuts off. It's an auto shut-off feature, and it's interesting. I wonder if either in our hearts, and through our lips and our actions. If we're less like my tea kettle, which when it comes to a boil, shuts off, and if we're more like the ones that howl louder and louder and louder until you shut them off. See, if we're passive and we hate conflict resolution or conflict in general, we're not going to resolve it. Because of that, we're going to sweep and we're going to sweep and we're going to sweep and we're going to sweep. But here's the deal. Even for the person who tends to be more passive when it revolves around conflict, you're still boiling little by little internally, right? And the person who's more passive, eventually it's going to erupt. Eventually it's going to come out. And whether it be in the home or whether it be in the marketplace, I talked to enough of you to know that being passive in conflict resolution, it just doesn't work. And here's the thing. When we're passive, what do we think? Well, I want to love them. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to make anyone upset. But I'm just saying when we're passive in conflict resolution, it's not truly loving somebody. Because what does it do? It just pushes the issue down the road. Just pushes it further down. It doesn't bring rest and peace to our hearts. It doesn't seek to restore the relationship. It just pretends like the issue isn't there and pushes it to a future time. And then pushes it to a future time, and it doesn't get resolved. And then the unrest stays, and then the lack of peace in the relationship stays. And maybe it's not that we're passive, but maybe it's that we're aggressive, and it doesn't take much to set us off. See, here's the thing. If I were to plug that in and turn that on again, would it take less time or more time to bring to a boil? It would take less, right? And maybe we're aggressive, and maybe it's because we've got all this unrest and all these past unresolved conflicts in our hearts so it doesn't take much and boom we're steaming we're steaming but we know that this isn't loving and then we go and we chew someone's head off or we we speak or we act in ways that aren't kind that don't honor god and the holy spirit convicts us and says ryan or put your name in there that's not right we know inherently that's not right see but if we don't deal with conflict if we either sweep it under the rug or if we blow our top so to speak but don't deal with it don't resolve it we're like the tea kettle that's already been plugged in that's already been brought to a boil and the next time something arises that revolves around that same issue or even any issue right this is when somebody gets frustrated with their spouse or their kids and like really was that that big of a deal and it had didn't have anything to do with that it had to do with something else that hasn't been resolved we're going to come to a boil quicker See, we don't know how long has passed since Onesimus ran away from Philemon uh, until Paul is having this letter delivered. But what we do know is Paul isn't passive. He doesn't not address the issue at hand. He is not aggressive. He doesn't order Philemon to do anything, but he's assertive. He's like, here's how I'm feeling about this situation. Here's how I'd like to have it resolved. And Paul's assertive ask is that Philemon would welcome Onesimus back but not simply as a bondservant, but as a brother. It helps to, the passage says slave in here. And when we think of slavery, we think about American history and the slavery that is there. So it's good to know kind of the context of slavery in this this passage. In New Testament times, a doulos, that's the Greek word for slave. In New Testament times, a doulos is often best described as a bondservant. That is, as someone bound to serve his master for a specific, usually lengthy period of time, but also as someone who might nevertheless own property, achieve social advancement, and even be released or purchase his freedom. So, am I saying this is something someone would aspire to? Maybe not, but it's different than our history. Okay? Someone would often, uh, people would at times allow themselves to be bond servants, to pay off a debt, different things. It's different than going to a country, taking someone, making them your slave. But in essence, even with that being said, even with that being said, if you were a bond servant, you were in, I want to use this word on purpose, you were Lord over them. And what I mean by that is when you told them to do something, you expected them to do it. Uh, when you asked them to do something, you, you wanted them and expected them to follow your wishes. See, what Paul is saying here is that the fact that Jesus is now Lord of both Onesimus and Philemon. Look at that. Look at verse 4 with me. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus. He's talking to Philemon there. Then go to verse 10 with me. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while I was in chains. What does he mean by my son? It's not his physical son. It's his spiritual son. Onesimus and Philemon now share the same Lord. Jesus, right? And if you're looking at this web of relationships between Paul and Onesimus and Philemon, we, we can tell Onesimus isn't Lord in that, so to speak. He's got no power. He's got the least power. Philemon would have the power in this situation, but Paul comes to him and he says, basically, you're not the Lord in this situation. But then he makes the statement and the application and says, neither am I. See, for all three of us in this web of relationship, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Everything has changed. There's only room for one Lord, and that's Jesus. It's not me, Philemon. It's not you, Philemon. It's not Onesimus, but it's Jesus. I mean, I can envision Paul with compassion and kind of tenderly pleading with Philemon in verse 15. Go back there with me, please. Verse 15. Philemon, perhaps the reason that Onesimus was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. And no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Philemon, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful. He was formerly useless spiritually because he couldn't help you share the good news of Jesus, because he didn't follow him. But now, wow, you've got a partner, Philemon. You've got better than a bondservant, You've got a partner, a brother, in the Lord Jesus who can help you share the good news of Jesus to all those around, to all those who meet in your home for the church. Family, how would it change how you resolve conflict if in conflict you thought, you know what? There's only room for one Lord. How would it change the way you and I resolve conflict if when we're in conflict... We thought and believed there's only room for one Lord. And guess who it's not? Us. It's Jesus. Right? So we believed, you know what, I'm not Lord of my spouse. Not Lord of my kids. Not Lord of my employees. Not Lord of my friends. I'm really not Lord of any circumstance or or situation, but rather we depended upon the one who is Lord And that's Jesus. If we had that attitude, if we believed that, how would it change how we dealt with conflict? And here's the irony in this. See, Paul's only living out what Jesus, the Lord, modeled. Jesus was Lord, but he, quote-unquote, didn't lord it over us. There's this cosmic conflict, right, between God the Father and his enemy, Uh, That resulted in humanity having conflict with God and being relationally separated from God. Right? And God's enemy wants nothing more than for humanity to not know the love of God. He wants nothing more than for God the Father to not love humanity. But God does. But God does love us. And he showed us. He, He took one man, Abraham. And he made him into one people, the Jewish people who were called to relationally love God, relationally love others, to point to the love of God the Father. Now we know this story. They mostly didn't. And so what had to happen was another man had to come from the same Jewish line and leave eternal fellowship with God. And in humble love, he would come to to earth as a man. And he would perfectly love God in order to resolve the conflict between God and man. And this man, though he was God in humility, he didn't use his power as Lord, but he laid down his power and in turn his life with the hope that those who witnessed or even heard about this humble Lord might trust in him to be brought to relational peace between God the Father and them. And then because of that, they would live out his humility and his love in their relationships in the world rather than seeking to be little lords themselves. And you're like, how does that involve conflict resolution? In how we resolve conflict resolution, in being humble and appealing in and love and, and believing there's only room for one Lord, we get to... It would seem weird, but tell a part of that great grand story of what God has done and how he's pursued us. See, what if because there's only room for one Lord? What if when we were resolving conflict, we we viewed our kids or we viewed our spouse or we viewed our employees or our, our friends either as a brother or sister in Christ because they believe in and follow him or as someone who God is pursuing? And wants to be a brother or sister in Christ who would come to believe in and follow him. What if we viewed them as that? And what if we believed that there was only room for one Lord? I think if we really believed this and acted on it, it would change a lot in how we resolve conflict. So if you leave with one idea, it would be when resolving conflict, there's only room for one Lord. And it's not us. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you a couple minutes. Um, they're going to play a little bit of instrumental music, and I want you to reflect on two questions. I want you to reflect on the first question. Uh, when resolving conflict, there's only room for one Lord, Jesus. How do you feel about that statement and why? Okay, that's what I want you to think about. How do you fe- uh, feel about that statement and why? And the second question I want you to think about and talk to God about, is there any step that God would have me take? Regarding this message. Is there any uh, person he'd have me pursue. Who I'm currently in conflict with. Is there any courage. He would want me to take to not be passive. Is there any way he would want me to lay down my power. And not act as Lord over someone else. Because there's only room for one Lord. How do you respond. There's only room for one Lord. And why. Is there any step that God would have me take. Based on that truth. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this family. Thank you that uh, Jesus is Lord of this family, and he's a, he's a kind Lord. He's a loving Lord. He's, he's a Lord who laid down his life for, like the song said, eight billion lives that he would hopefully save, that he didn't want anyone to perish, but all to have everlasting life. Father, might the way we resolve conflict point to that greater, grander story of a humble Lord who laid down his life for us, And might we also appeal to our brothers and sisters and those who we would hope would become brothers and sisters in humility, in love, acknowledging that in resolving conflict, there's only room for one Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.